you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. So we'll finish the book of Colossians. Next week, we're going to start the book of Psalms. We'll be in Psalms 1. Uh, Next week, we're going to go through the Psalms. Uh, We're not going to go through all 150 Psalms uh, together. Uh, We picked our favorites. Rich and I, who's the Ellicott campus pastor, we picked eight or ten of our favorite Psalms, and we're excited to preach through uh, those. We really feel like Psalms is great for this time of year, as it's so stressful to really come to the Lord and find Him to be our refuge. You know, I've always been pretty secure with the sound of my voice uh, until last weekend when we had Ken Graves here. (laughs) And all week I've just been feeling like my voice is really high. (laughs) And I've been working on it. Open your Bibles too, Colossians. But just can't quite get it, so. Did you guys enjoy having him here? So, yeah, it was a blessing to have him. So we'll be in Colossians 4, uh, verse 2 this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the opportunity to gather as church family to study uh, your word together. We ask that you would send your spirit to lead us deeper into prayer, deeper into dependency upon you, that we also could grow in walking in wisdom, especially with those that don't know Christ. And we could live relationally and be committed to relationships with one another. So God, we thank you, we praise you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Colossians is such a powerful book. At this point in our study, it's good to go back and review. Maybe sometime today you'll go and read through this postcard epistle and be reminded of the preeminence of Christ, that Christ is to be first in our lives that he is our savior, he is our completer, he's the one who reveals the father to us, and in him, our position in him, we have forgiveness. The first two chapters devoted to the greatness of Christ, and then chapter three, how do we live that out? How do we live out the preeminence of Christ? What does it look like for Christ to be first in our lives in practical terms? It starts with our mind, to set our mind on things that are above then to put off the garments of the old man and put on the new garments of Christ. To put off anger and malice and ill will and covetousness and put on kindness and tender mercies and ultimately the love of God. To have the peace of God rule in our hearts, to be thankful in song and worship to the Lord, that then correlates into relationships with one another. When we're internally right with the Lord, that's going to help externally in relationships with each other. Two weeks ago, we studied the relationship of the family and the relationship of work. And now we pick up into chapter 4, and it's the final exhortations of Paul. He gives us three exhortations this morning to apply to our lives. And the first is prayer. Continue earnestly in prayer being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, to pray continually. Paul says, you're already praying, but you need to continue in prayer, and you need to continue earnestly in prayer. The word earnestly means to be devoted, to be persistent, almost to an obstinate place, where I'm devoted to prayer. I'm going to continue to ask and seek and knock upon God's door. With prayer, it's easy for us to get discouraged in prayer or to doubt prayer. 
Is God hearing my prayer? Am I getting anywhere with my prayers? Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, told a parable. He says, I'm telling you this story because I don't want you to lose heart in prayer. The story that he told was of a widow. And widows don't oftentimes get justice. She was bringing her case, her cause, before a judge. The judge was an unjust judge. Ever met any of those in your life? All right. The judge is not paying attention to the concerns and the care of the widow. So she persists and persists and persists. And this judge finally hears her plea, not because he wants to, but if he doesn't, this lady will never leave me alone. And Jesus actually gives us that as an example of prayer and saying, how much more will your heavenly father hear you? God wants us to keep asking, to keep knocking, to keep pursuing. Notice the context of this is right at the end of family relations and work relations. Prayer is the oil that makes relationships work. Prayer is the oil that allows us to be a witness at work and whatever our hands find to do, to do it wholeheartedly unto the Lord. If you're in discouragement in an area of prayer in your life, allow this to encourage you to continue earnestly in prayer. Also, we're told to be vigilant in prayer. The word vigilant is watchful, to be watchful in our prayers. Jesus told the disciples to pray lest they enter into temptation. That prayer was to keep them out of sin. You maybe have noticed in your relationship with the Lord, when you're close to the Lord in prayer, it's easier to say no to temptation. But when we've neglected time with the Lord, when we've neglected prayer, then it's much more difficult to say no to temptation. So be vigilant in prayer, be watchful in prayer. The idea is if you know you're walking through an area of town that's a little bit more dangerous or you're going for a walk in your neighborhood and all of a sudden you're alerted to danger, you're going to be vigilant. Maybe you go on a, a hike here in Colorado and on that particular hike it's been reported that there has been a mountain lion. You're going to have a much more vigilant walk, aren't you? Right? You're going to be much more, more careful we do have an enemy that wants to destroy us, and so we need to be watchful in prayer. We need to be vigilant in, in prayer. Prayer makes us aware of the attack of the enemy. And the third aspect to prayer here is that it's to be thankful, that it's to be filled with thanksgiving. It's easy to forget to be thankful in our prayers, where we express our need before the Lord but we're not giving our praise to God. Our requests are not wrapped in praise and wrapped in thanksgiving. A grateful heart is attractive to God and people. It's attractive to God and it's attractive to people when we're in that place of, of gratitude. And I know we're headed into thanksgiving. It's kind of the norm to try to be, be thankful on thanksgiving. But to really make it part of our lifestyle, part of our spiritual d discipline to be thankful before the Lord. Went to a, a funeral of a friend here at our church yesterday at 10, and his father-in-law was coming and, and sharing when he heard the news of, of his son-in-law passing away, that he went into his study and out of habit began to praise the Lord. And that really struck me, and that really hit me. Here's this older man that says, I got this surprising news of my son-in-law's death, 
and out of habit, I went and praised the Lord. If he didn't have that built into his character, that wouldn't have been his default upon hearing that, that bad news and hearing the, the difficult news of the passing of his son-in-law. And it, it struck me, is that part of my character? Is that part of, of my habit to be thankful to the Lord? I want it to be, but if I'm honest with you, it's a lot easier for me to grumble and complain. It's a lot easy for me to tell you the things that I'm frustrated with instead of the things that I'm thankful with. These two things have been a theme for me personally this year of prayer and thanksgiving. There's so much of prayer that I feel I need to learn and grow in. When I look at the lives of the disciples, what's the one thing that they ask Jesus to teach them? Lord, teach me to pray. When they spent time with Jesus, they saw this deep fellowship with the Father, and they said, I want to learn that. I want to learn to pray the way that you pray, Jesus. And for me, in my relationship with the Lord, kind of historically, it's a lot easier for me to study the Word than to pray. And it's important to study the Word, but it's also important to be able to pray. The disciples didn't ask to be taught how to teach. Jesus, we want to teach like you. They didn't ask, we want to do miracles like you. They said, we want to learn how to be able to pray. Jesus only had 33 years on this planet, three years of public ministry, and he spent so much time in prayer. When we think, why pray? In your heart and mind, do you have an answer? Why do I pray? It's not simply about getting things accomplished. It's not simply about making our requests be known to God, but it's all about relationship. We're invited into relationship with a heavenly father. We're invited into a relationship with a dad that wants to spend time with us. So start where you're at. Go, how do we grow in this area of prayer? It's not about more time. You know, God's not keeping a chart and going, wow, you hit 15 minutes, you really did good, right? Oh, you're up to an hour, now you're a spiritual saint. It comes from our hearts of saying, Father, I want to spend time with you. Maybe it's on your drive to work. Maybe it's starting to take a walk and incorporate in that walk, talking with the Lord and listening to the Lord. Maybe you find yourself really distracted and say, I just got to get on my knees. I got to start my day on my knees in prayer. Maybe you're a night owl. Late night prayers are just as spiritual as early morning prayers. We've kind of gotten this idea. It's like, if it's not first thing in the day, then it doesn't count. It counts late at night at two. Maybe all of your family's in bed, you're still awake, and it's quiet in your home, and that's the time that you get on your knees and seek the Lord. But our lives need fellowship with God more than any other time. We personally need fellowship with God. Our church needs to be a, a praying church. And we are a praying church, but we want to continue in prayer. Just this last Wednesday, we had a great time of prayer and worship together corporately as a church family. Our church needs prayer. Our community needs prayer. Our families need prayer. It's an opportunity to fellowship with the Lord. We need God to work in a way that we can't. Amen? And that comes to the Lord in prayer. That comes to the Lord in independence. And Paul sees the, the great value of that. He believes so much in prayer that he asks for prayer. In verse 3, he says, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. 
Paul's in prison as he's writing this letter. It's because of the mystery of Christ that he's in chains. The mystery of Christ we know from chapter one is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching Christ and the potential for Christ to be present in someone's life, in someone's heart, and that's why he's in chains. If we're in prison and we're asking for prayer, we would probably say, please pray that I get out of jail soon. That God would send me a get out of jail free card. But instead he says, pray that I would have doors opened to preach Christ in the midst of the difficulty. See the difference? Oftentimes I want out of the challenge. I want out of the difficulty. I want out of the hot, fiery trial. But many times God's saying, turn your attention to what I can do through this difficulty and ask for prayer that doors would be open to be able to proclaim Christ. Paul says, I want to be able to speak this mystery accurately in God's power. So please be praying for me. It's a good thing to ask for prayer. And it's hard to do, isn't it? For some of you, you're really good about praying for others. But when it comes to the difficulty in your own life, it's hard to open up and to ask uh, for prayer. But Paul has the humility to ask for prayer. I want to thank you for praying for our staff here and our pastoral team. And we feel your prayers and we're so thankful for your prayers. And we're praying for you. And please, if we're not on your prayer list, please put us on your prayer list. And pray for our families and pray for our marriages and and for our, our kids. And specifically, pray that God would give us opportunities that there would be open doors to be able to proclaim who Jesus is. We live in exciting times where a lot of people don't know Christ as their Savior. And only God can open those doors and open up hearts to the goodness of, of Christ. The next exhortation that we have is in verse 5. Walk in wisdom to those who are outside, redeeming the time. So to pray continually, but to also walk in wisdom. Walk speaks of lifestyle. It speaks of conduct. It speaks of, of character. That our, our character would be of wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied. It's taking the truth that we know, but applying it to, to our lives. And specifically, we want to walk in wisdom to those who don't know Christ as their Savior. Redeeming the time. In context, taking advantage of every opportunity with an unbeliever. Unbelievers are watching. As Christ is first in our lives, hopefully Christ is being made known and being made manifest to those who don't know Christ as, as their Savior. Unbelieving neighbors and family members and co-workers, they're watching our lives. And so we want to walk in wisdom. We want to be that witness that God is calling us to through the power of the Spirit. It's surprising how Paul tells us how to do this, how the Holy Spirit tells us to walk in wisdom and be a light to an unbeliever. It's shown in verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Wisdom applied, wisdom shown to an unbeliever is seen through our words, our speech, that our speech is seasoned with grace. Grace is the salt that makes someone hungry for Christ, thirsty for Christ. Salt is so good, isn't it? I mean, if you had to pick salt or sweet, what would you pick? I would pick salt, hands down. I mean, boulder potato chips, tortilla chips, 
I think probably what makes ice cream good is that there's salt in it, right? But what happens when you have a bag of chips? Is you're thirsty. I got to get some water. I got to get a soda. I got to get a Coke, right? And hopefully, as we're in relationship with unbelievers, that they see our speech, that it's gracious, that it's kind, and it makes them thirsty for Jesus. It makes them desire to know more about who Christ is. What does it mean to season our words? When you think about when you make some scrambled eggs, scrambled eggs without salt and pepper is just gross. It's just gross. Like, so you think about it and you're like, man, I got to put some salt, a little bit of salt on these scrambled eggs, a little pepper on these scrambled eggs. So we're interacting with people and we stop and think and we pause and ask for help of the Holy Spirit. I got to put a little bit of grace into this conversation. This, this conversation needs a little bit of flavor. It needs a little bit of spice. So I need to be gracious with, with my words. I need to be kind with, with my words. And this definitely takes the help of God in, in our lives. So justice is to give somebody what they deserve, right? So I'm going to be just with my words, and I'm going I'm to give them what they need to hear. Grace is not giving someone what they deserve, but then also giving them a blessing, giving them, giving them favor, Someone may be chewing you out, lose, really losing their temper with us. And for us to, to step back and not return evil for evil, to reply with a soft answer, maybe something like, you know what, thank you for sharing with me how you feel. That really helps me. Not in sarcasm. Right. <laughs> so when I think about this, I go, wow, this is difficult. Yes, this really works. This is really going to cause people to see the reality of Christ in our lives, but it's difficult. But we're promised the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to be a a witness to others. Please focus on the end of verse 6 before we move on. It says that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So if we're thinking through this filter of grace, this salty speech, that's going to provide the wisdom of how we are to answer each person. Am I answering this person in grace? Family members, am I putting some gracious speech, some gracious salt into the conversation with a coworker, with an unbeliever, with a neighbor, giving that gracious speech? It's going to provide the wisdom of how to know to be able to answer them. The rest of the chapter is the third exhortation. It's to live relationally. Paul begins to talk about all of these important people in his life, which is common at the end of Paul's letters. He mentions over a hundred people in his letters. Paul was a soul winner. He was a church planter, but he was also a friend maker. Paul was good at relationships. He sees the value of relationships with unbelievers and the value of relationship with the body of Christ the end of this book here, these next few verses, he's going to mention 11 people. And if you were to circle the word you or your as we're going through this, you'll notice that Paul uses that over and over again. He's saying, this is Tychicus and this is what he's doing for you. This is how he is blessing the church of Colossae. And the overall theme of this shows us the real value of the body of Christ, the real value of having relationships with one another. 
Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. That's quite the compliment. That's quite the resume. That he's a beloved brother. Paul says, yeah, he is a bro in the Lord. He's a loved brother, but he's also a faithful minister. He's faithful. You can count on Tychicus to follow through with his word. He's a fellow servant in the Lord. He sees the value of serving the Lord. Paul says we're able to serve the Lord together. Tychicus is going to come and tell the church about how Paul is doing, deliver the letter, deliver the epistle, but also bring news back about the church of Colossae in verse 8. And I am sending him to you for this very purpose that he may know your circumstance and comfort your hearts. He's going to know how you're doing. So Tychicus is a faithful brother, but he's coming to minister to you. Paul says, I can't come in person, so Tychicus is going to come and know your circumstance. Tychicus is mentioned five times in the scripture, and he traveled with Paul, and Paul would use him for ministry and send him on assignments. In verse 9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. So Tychicus is not traveling alone. He's traveling with Onesimus. God sent out his disciples. Jesus sent out his disciples in two. God's work is never to be done alone. It's always to be done with a partner. So Tychicus has Onesimus coming with him, who is from Colossae. But also we know Onesimus' story from the book of Philemon. Onesimus was a runaway slave, came in contact with Paul, and Paul says, you need to go back and make things right with your slave owner Philemon, sends a letter to Philemon saying, you need to receive Onesimus back and be gracious to him. Paul even uses the words with Philemon, you owe your very life to me. <laughs> Paul's saying, I was used by the Lord to bring you to Christ, and you need to make sure that you give forgiveness to o Onesimus. So Onesimus is a slave. As we read through this, we're going to find that it's a variety of a group of people coming from a lot of different backgrounds. In verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. Aristarchus is in prison with Paul. So that must have been a great comfort to Paul. Aristarchus is mentioned also five times in scripture. He was on Paul's third missionary journey, and he was from Thessalonica. He's a Thessalonian, so he's a Gentile. We'll see there's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's slaves, there's free, but also there's mention of Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. We know about John Mark from the book of Acts. It's Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas, they say, let's take my cousin, John Mark. It's about halfway through the missionary journey. John Mark decides, I want to go back. We don't know why he wants to go back. Maybe he feels like it's too difficult. Maybe he's homesick. It reminds me of when I went to kids camp for the first time, the summer between third and fourth grade. I went with my buddy Doug and his church. Didn't know anybody. And for some reason, Doug got really homesick. So we're in the bunk beds, and he's crying about how much he misses his mom. And at kids' camp, homesickness is like a cold. And I caught it. 
I got homesick after hearing about how much he missed his mom, but I think I got it worse than him. So here we were, these young eight-year-old boys crying in the bunks for our moms, and all I could think about was, I want to go home, right? And if Funny enough, I, I wasn't thinking at all about my dad. I didn't think about my dad at all. All I, all I was missing was my mom, right? So halfway through this camp, I'm just in complete misery, and I'll never forget it. It was like after lunch, we had this playtime, and here comes my mom. And it's like, oh, that's my hero, right? My mom, she came to check on me. So I begged mom. I said, mom, would you please take me home? And she caved, and I went home in the Fair, Ford Fairmont, right? But I just overwhelmed with, with homesickness. And I don't know what it was in John Mark, but, but something in him said, I'm going to turn back. I'm going to give up on this missionary journey. So it comes to the next missionary journey, and Barnabas is like, let's give John Mark a second chance. And the Apostle Paul says, not in your life. This guy left me high and dry. We can't count on him. And Barnabas says, No. We need to give him a second chance. The Bible tells us that there was a sharp dispute between Paul and Barnabas on this, and they actually part ways. And two missionary journeys are formed. Paul takes Silas, Barnabas takes Mark. Let's try to put ourselves in the shoes, the sandals of John Mark. How would it feel to fail? And how would it feel to have the apostle Paul say, you're not coming with me? It'd be easy for John Mark to say, I'm packing it up. This, I'm not serving the Lord. I've failed. I'll just love Jesus, but I'm not going to serve the Lord at all. But to John Mark's credit, he kept serving the Lord, even though Paul was disappointed. As the story goes on, now Paul's saying, hey, John Mark, if he comes to you, welcome me. At the end of Paul's life, his last letter, 2 Timothy, he says John Mark is profitable to him in ministry. John Mark is an example of when you fail, don't give up. I want you to hear this. If you endeavor to serve the Lord, you're going to mess up. It's easier to sit on the bleachers and say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to serve the Lord. But if you endeavor to serve the Lord, you're going to fail. And like John Mark, don't stay in the failure. Learn from it. Get up. Keep serving the Lord. And God is a God not only of second chances, but third chances and more and more chances for us to say, okay, I'm going to learn from this and I'm going to continue to serve the Lord. So I find a lot of comfort in John Mark. Verse 11, and Jesus, who is called Justice. If your name was Jesus in the early church, you probably need to come up with a nickname. So he went by Justice instead of Jesus. And we don't know a lot about Jesus who was called Justice. These are my these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So these men are, are Jewish men that are saved that know Christ as their Savior. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervent you, fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all of the will of God. Epaphras sends his love through this letter. He's one of you, he's from the church of Colossae, and he's faithful to pray for you. The word laboring fervently is to agonize. It's the idea of giving birth. So he's agonizing in prayer that the church would be complete, that the church would be mature, that the church would be perfect in the will of God. Verse 13, For I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those who are in higher... Hierapolis. 
Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So Luke is what we would consider to be a, a working professional. He's highly educated. He is a physician. You have a slave, you have a physician, all part of these relationships and the body of Christ. And Luke sends greeting to the church of Colossae as well. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. Demas's story is tragic. If you look up 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, we see that Demas departed from Paul because he loved this present world. He gave up on the things of God, being used by God, serving God, because the things of this world he loved more than serving Christ. He drifted from his relationship with Christ. A relationship with Christ is something that needs to be fueled. It needs to be fueled. As the weather has gotten cold, you might have a fireplace in your home. You've got to fuel it with wood to be able to keep it going. In our relationship with the Lord, sometimes maybe we put effort into it years ago, and that will last for a particular time, but eventually we'll begin to drift if we're not investing currently, if we're not loving the Lord currently and focusing on who Christ is, and Demas drifts. And it's easy to to drift from, from the Lord. So invest, continue to draw near to the Lord. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. So Nymphus chooses to use his home as a place for the body of Christ to be able uh, to gather. And that's a beautiful example for us. If God's blessed you with a home, an apartment, to say, I want this to be a place of worship. So what do we learn in this as we read through these names? The first is, is that life is meant to be lived in relationship. God wants us to be in relationship with each other. God is relational in who he is. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This mystery of the Trinity that there's three distinct persons, but yet one God. But there's this amazing relationship that's found inside of the Trinity. God has created us to be in relationship. Isn't it an interesting time that we live in? Really, right now, currently, we're in this social experiment of technology. And for me, my generation, it really changed in my growing up years. I remember when we got our first family computer that could access the internet with dial-up. And there really wasn't a lot online, you know, for you to search and took so long and email became a thing. When I started working here at the church is when I actually got my first cell phone. I was 21 years old and man, you had to watch those minutes. Couldn't use that thing too much. Texting was such a pain got the letters there on the numbers and you got to push them three or four times and you're like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I still don't really use text to have conversation. It's just direct communication. It's a way to get things done. But I'm noticing my kids' generation and they say, hey, I talked with my friend today. I go, did you, did you talk to them or did you text them? Oh, we text. But that's real communication to them. And it's like, 
They're so fast, you know, they're just... And in a moment's time, we can have access with each other through our phones, but we don't spend a lot of time with each other. We don't have face, real face time with each other. And, and God has created us to be in relationship. So possibly we have more access to each other, but we're more lonely than we've ever been before. Maybe secondarily to our relationship with the Lord, we're lacking relationship with each other more than any other time before. We really have to choose to say, I'm going to be in relationship with believers. I'm going to see it as being valuable to invest time with believers. And how the Holy Spirit does that in your life, that's up to you. How the Lord opens up relationship, but I know it takes investment and I know it takes commitment. And if you're looking for relationship, you're saying, I feel extremely isolated. I don't have relationship with believers. Check out our connect groups. They're just ending for the semester. They'll start up in January. It's a great way to be in relationship with each other. They meet twice a month and they always involve food. And sharing what God is doing in your life, joys and struggles. And I've heard great testimony of what God's doing through uh, connect groups. People saying, I've come to RMC for 12, 13 years, but I never knew anyone. And now I have relationship with with other believers. Investing in men's ministry or, or women's ministry. They meet in small group format. And you'll have relationship with each other. Again, women's Semester's ending, but it's going to begin in January. There's men's study that happens through the week. Ladies study Tuesday mornings and and Tuesday nights. Serving inside of our church family is a great way to build relationships. As you serve alongside of someone in the cafe or as an usher or children's ministry or in a variety of these different ministries, you're going to get to know people and have depth of relationship. It may be outside of the church with other believers. God loves all believers, amen? So you may have relationship with believers in your neighborhood, at your workplace, but make a point to say, I need to spend time with believers. I've been blessed to meet with a group of guys on Friday mornings. I think we're at like about year 13 of meeting together on Friday mornings. These guys are great friends and I really enjoy spending time with them. But every Friday morning when it comes to being at Starbucks at 6.15 in the morning, I never feel like going. I I very rarely feel like going. And I always have this conversation with Amber. She's like, are you going to go tomorrow? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to go tomorrow. I'm tired. I'd, I'd like to sleep a little bit longer, right? But every time I go, I'm so thankful that I go. And to have that support. Why do we need one another? Because there's going to be times when we fall. There's going to be times when life punches us in the face. There's going to be times where we really need one another. And if we don't have those relationships, we're in that place that we're isolated. So make the investment. Invest in relationships. It's worthwhile. That's what we learn from this. We also learn that God's work is a team effort. God's work is a, is a team effort. There's the Apostle Paul, but those around the Apostle Paul. And I hope if you've come here for a period of time, you look around the church body and you see God using the body. You see so many different gifts and, and personalities focused on the head, focused on Jesus. I'm so thankful for our pastoral team that we, we have here. 
Dan Johnson and Sean Rafferty ministering this weekend down in Chihuahua. You know, Dan Hooker and all that he's doing with School of Discipleship. Pastor Robert, he's like the administrative genius as he takes care of the administrative things and is really faithful in the Lord. To Billy, our, our worship pastor, and, and Jenna doing worship ministry. And the list just goes on and on and on of you serving the Lord and us coming together. And that's what God desires. Anytime that there is a movement of God, you're going to see people coming together, partnering for the work of God. It's, it's a team effort, and we're just one little small part of the body, Rocky Mountain Calvary, that's connected to the body as a whole. You know, there's an awesome team at Vanguard Church. There's an awesome team over at Discovery Church and New Life Church and over in Gulu, Uganda with Calvary Chapel Gulu. People coming together. God's work is done as a, a team effort. In verse 16 now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So the letter is from the whole region. They're also going to benefit from the letter that Paul wrote uh, to the Laodiceans. Verse 17, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry that you've received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Imagine your Archie. And this letter is being read to the church for the first time. And you're listening, oh yeah, Jesus, you're preeminent. You're the fulfillment of the Sabbath. I need to put off these things, put on these things. Family, work. Oh yeah, we get a greeting from Tychicus. And then all of a sudden, your name's in the letter. Archie, you need to take heed to the ministry that God's given to you, that you fulfill it. He must have been going through a battle and a difficulty of saying, you know, I'm just done. I'm done. I'm not going to be faithful to the things that God has called me to do. I'm going to resign, right? And here, Jesus knows that this is going on and sends the message through Paul and says, I'm not taking your resignation. <laughs> and God puts specific callings upon our lives in ways that we're supposed to serve him in our families and in our work. And, and sometimes we get to that place where we're weary and we're discouraged and we're wondering if it's worth it and be reminded God's the one who's given you that ministry. God's the one that has given you that calling and take heed to fulfill it. Take heed to be faithful to it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. Paul says, remember my chains, and he leaves the church in the care of grace. Grace be with you. Grace is the starting point, it's the ending point, it's every point in between. So may we rest and rejoice and rely upon the grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these final exhortations in the book of Colossians. Would you teach us how to pray? Would you grow us in our, our prayer life and dependency upon you? May we continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant, coming to you with thanksgiving. Help us with our speech. It's so easy to be harsh with our speech, to hammer people with our words. May we be reminded of the grace that you give to us and season our speech with grace to give unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor with, with our words. And may you help us to be a light to those that don't know you. And God, would you be gracious to 
bless our relationship with believers. Believers inside of this body, but also believers that attend other churches. We know that we're one body collectively. For those that have been hurt or discouraged in area of relationships let down, Lord, would you heal those wounds and encourage them to invest in, in relationship? We do thank you for your grace, that you love us unconditionally. So God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.